Welcome to today's episode of the Women in MedTech series in the MedTech Business Academy podcast. I'm your host, Colleen Patterson, and with me today, as always, are our panel, Barbara Strain and Abby Norfleet. We're very excited to also have with us Julia Jacobson, CEO of Next Medical Products, manufacturer of ultrasound gel, and patient positioners and distributor of laryngoscopes, which I never feel like I say correctly, but I think I did that time, and Bloxer Solutions, manufacturer of x-ray protection aprons and hand cream. Bouncing between factories in New Jersey and Utah, Julie has a passion for domestic sourcing, women-owned businesses, and innovating new products geared toward female clinicians and patients. We're going to start it over passing it to Barbara this time, not Julia, because Barbara actually brought Julia to me after about a year of knowing her. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your relationship together and, you know, how, you know, what you guys have worked on together. Thanks uh, a lot, Colleen. It's a pleasure to see Julia again today and uh, to talk to her and have her on the show. Uh, Julie and I met not quite a year ago at a local meeting in D.C. of a variety of uh, different suppliers, manufacturers, and others in healthcare, and we actually happened to sit at a table together, so that networking and things really pays off. So on one side, I actually had her father, who is part of the company, and then Julie on the other side, and so I bounce things off each other just knowing a little bit more but so fascinated by Julia's career and things and then lo and behold I opened the October issue of healthcare purchasing news and who's staring at me on page 27 but Julia who was interviewed for an article so I said this is just perfect so Julia this is great to see you again and to sort of pick up Uh, where we left off, but um, in that article, just to kick us all off, it was focused on your perspective about female physician needs. So I thought that was a good place to get started. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing, but let's jump into that female physician needs aspect. Sure. So that article uh, focused on our company Bloxer out of Utah, where we make x-ray protection, um, aprons and hand cream. And it came about because uh, we came out with bra inserts. So essentially inserts you can put in your bra that block radiation because most of the gear on the market is not made to fit women bodies. You can get custom made, which is what we do. And we really encourage you to get an apron that fits so you're getting adequately protected. But the norm is just they buy whatever you get in the OR, you put it on. Since they want to fit most people, it will have a gaping armhole and your breast tissue is exposed. So we came out with bra inserts, a cost-effective way to protect yourself. Even if the facility is not going to buy you adequate protection, you can do it yourself. Take it into your own hands. Um, And October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So it kind of gets brought up again every October. Um, But yeah, I've seen more and more Products just aren't made for women, women clinicians, and um, people are pretty blunt about it. They'll be like, well, you know, it's mostly men. <laughs> so why would we make something to fit a woman's body, female body? So now, as you see more and more women going into healthcare and in leadership positions, surgeon positions, finally, I think women are getting the attention that they've been demanding, but now it's actually being received and products are. There are companies or manufacturers can tailor their products to women. 
I think one of the really interesting things, Julia, coming off of our discussion, because um, I, I do a quick intro with pretty much all of our guests before they come on, um, just so I can learn a little bit about them, was the idea, and it was something you had kind of just said in passing, that it really took women being the surgeons, being being the leader of the chain in order to see influence happen, in order for the voices to be heard. And I think that there's two really interesting factors in that, which is, you know, what are some of the contributing items where you know, the largest cohort of the actual service delivery is obviously not at the physician level? So question number one would be, you know, why do you think some of those challenges exist? And then a secondary aspect that I found really interesting is when we're looking at the rates of clinicians going into medical school, we're, we're pretty much 50-50 these days. It's, it's very even. But specialties specifically like radiology, it's very underrepresented. And I, I was wondering if you might have any insights in, into either of those. Um, yeah, it is It is frustrating to see women sometimes being ignored when I always point out to the supply chain folks, like, well, it's that female OR tech that is being exposed to radiation for 12 hours. The surgeon just pops in and out sometimes. <laughs> or, you know, we're actually getting more exposure. Um, so it's a little unfortunate that I think just an overlooked population. And I, I I also think that maybe some women aren't as forceful with what they think they deserve in the workplace. Um, I tell them, I tell women all the time, I said, this should be, you should go to, you can go to HR, you can go to like anyone you can go to and say, I, I should be protected. Like I'm being exposed to radiation. It's an occupational risk. And I deserve the same protection that, you know, that male surgeon's getting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little frustrating, but I do think times are changing and, and, Men are receptive to this too, like men in supply chain. I mean, I'm not trying to judge that. I think a lot of them do want women to also be protected. So I think it's just a cultural change with both genders that everyone is recognizing the need for everyone to be protected, not just the person who's the top of the food chain in the room. It, that that's always something that you find that, you know, you don't always know what you don't know. And, mm-hmm. you know, if this is a room that's historically been men or not people who have voiced up like, hey, this is a problem, then it's easy for us to get to today and be like, well, why, why is it that nothing ever happened differently? But it really does take people advocating for themselves because, you know, nobody's going to choose to spend, you know, extra money. Um, but one of the interesting things that you guys do to me was not just about the technology related to, you know, the custom fit on the on the um, gowns, but you guys have a hand cream that also blocks some of the radiation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a really cool product. It's patented. So it's the only one in the world and it's a replacement for lead gloves. So you can see sometimes people wear lead gloves to block the radiation. It's cumbersome. They're thick. They're uncomfortable. So most clinicians will just choose not to wear them because they think Mm -hmm. it hinders their job. But we have invented a lotion, essentially like sunscreen, but you know, for a different type of radiation. And they just put that on their hands, put on your normal gloves. You maintain your tactile ability. You don't even feel it. And you're getting much better protection than you would from lead gloves. So that is that's a really cool product. It's It's definitely new to be adopted. A lot of people are just used to not protecting their hands. And mm-hmm. I'll meet doctors and I'm like, okay, you're exposed to radiation. What do you need for your job? You need your hands. You need your eyes and you need your brain. And those are three parts that we historically have not protected from radiation. When there's proven higher rates of breast cancer and brain cancer from people who are exposed to radiation on a daily basis. 
So I think our company is trying to impart knowledge, not just sell a product, but especially the young physicians who are, I think, more open to learning, especially at conferences and trade shows. They're there to learn about new products and learn what they should be doing um, in terms of protection. So we're seeing a much bigger increase with younger doctors and clinicians, not just doctors, who are interested in protecting you know, their hands with the lotion. We were the first company, company to come out with a cap. So it blocks radiation for your brain. Um, and then eyewear is pretty is pretty standard. Um, but I mean, you can see the statistic, people exposed to radiation, getting cataract surgery in your 30s is not normal. Wow. <laughs> but it is in this industry. So, you know, the need to protect yourself is definitely becoming more and more known. And especially with social media, I think that's been a real help with female clinicians too. They can see people talking about, you know, protect yourself, your apron should fit. Um, like you deserve these things in the workplace. So I think just like Instagram, um, doctors and female clinicians that post about these products are really, really helpful for knowledge. So I feel like you, you already started touching on this a little bit uh, as the question that kind of popped in my head. But going back to the hand cream and the way that you were talking a little bit about you innovated this product to basically overcome a challenge in which a lot of clinicians didn't want to protect themselves because of how the lead gloves would impact their practice. So you came up with this other product that you started to launch and, and 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 maybe started alluding to a little bit that adoption might be slightly a challenge because in a way it's a new product, it's a new category. So maybe uh, if you could take some time to dive in a little bit into how you are, are breaking down those barriers a little bit and just being able to kind of share that outside of just the, hey, it makes sense, it blocks the UV or it blocks the radiation to protect you. What are some other ways that you're going about to try to get that adoption and uptake on this kind of more new category and technology? Um, we definitely uh, get more exposure at conferences and trade shows when sure. people are there for educational purposes. I think the foot traffic at trade shows is going down. A lot of people don't think it's worth the dollars. Um, and we we grapple with that decision every conference. Like, did we get sales out of this? And we factor in, well, did we impart knowledge, especially to young clinicians that maybe don't get that in the workplace? They're just kind of told, here are lead gloves, or you don't really need to protect your hands. <laughs> you know, they're told yeah. whatever they're told in the workplace that might differ from, I don't know what I would tell them. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's kind of our um, means of imparting knowledge right now, because you get a lot of young clinicians who are walking the trade show floor who have no purchasing power. So a lot of manufacturers might ignore them because they're young, they're students, but I like meeting them and talking to them because they're the future generation. They're mm -hmm. the future leaders. Um, so I think it's really important for them to learn. So it's yeah. definitely a knowledge sell, um, but it's less expensive than lead gloves. So purchasing should be on board too. One of the items that you had mentioned, I'm going to bring back the article that Barbara had discussed um, at the beginning of the conversation. One of the questions in that, that I was like, like it, it seems so simple, but I feel like it's something that we hear frequently is, well, why aren't hospitals doing more to protect people? And you had some great answers there about like, you know, it's, it's really easy for them to cite budgetary concerns, but the reality of the risk is so much higher. Um, so if you have a clinician there and they are so excited about using the products and they're getting that pushback from, you know, there are zero dollars to spend, 
you know, what are, what are some of the talk tracks that you help them with? Because in reality, and this is true for really any medical devices, you can have a champion. Um, but if they're getting told, no, like I don't, I don't have two nickels to rub together. That can be a really hard thing to try to overcome. So, but for a product like yours, that's so geared toward the safety of the people providing the care, you know, what are some of the ways that, that you've helped people tackle that particular challenge? So especially with young clinicians um, and residents and fellows, most of them do have like an education budget, like a book budget. Um, and they don't realize that they, they could send that towards radiation protection. So we bring that to their attention a lot and they realize, oh, yeah, I'm giving these dollars and I don't even know what to do with them. I don't buy books anymore <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> so um, that has been really good for residents and fellows. We also give a discount. If you're in any kind of student capacity or learning capacity, um, we also try to make our product cost effective. We didn't have any price increases during COVID or honestly, I think in the last eight years, whereas a lot of our competitors just set percentage increase every year because they're selling to the hospital. We sell a lot direct to physicians and clinicians so they can buy themselves like travel nurses. They love our product because they can fold it up and take it with them because mm -hmm. we're not like typical lead. So we don't crack. So our goal is to make it affordable. So if your hospital is not going to give you the proper protection, you can you can buy it yourself. Which is unfortunate. Every time I'm like, oh, you know, they already had to pay for schooling and now they're buying their own protection. But um, for right now, at least it's affordable. Those are some really great points. You know, we have a variety of listeners to our podcast that are in different stages of their uh, company arcs and things. So do you do a lot of either focus groups or voice of the customer or, you know, other than, you know, being present at uh, meetings and different convention sites and things? How do you get your intel about what's really going on out there? And, and then how do you translate that into doing some either data research or something to come up with these products? I would say we're actually a little lacking in that in the customer voice department. We could definitely do more there. Um, except our biggest, our best sales rep, I say, is our is our customer base. It's really it's word of mouth. People love the product so much that they actually tell, you know, people they went to med school with, um, people they met during residency, travel nurses they met on the road. So, which we, you know, we sell ultrasound gel. We sell other products where people don't really talk about them. So it was really unique to have, I mean, maybe half of our customers actually just come from referrals, word of mouth, which really speaks volume to the quality of the product. Um, so we we probably should do more like advertising that. Um, a lot of times too, we get a great testimonial. And, I, and I'm like, this is very compelling that a clinician who is so busy felt the need to take the time and send us this in writing. And then we want to publish it or share it and the facility they work out says, oh, you can't attribute, you know, <laughs> you can't say where they're coming from, basically. So mm -hmm. it doesn't hold as much weight, but we really have amazing customer testimonials. And the fact that they tell their friends and, you know, fellow clinicians about it is is really great for us. That's It's interesting to kind of hear you talk about this and a lot of the, Again, the adoption that you're getting from it, um, specifically, I guess you're talking about the the aprons and the hand cream and, and 
seems to be a little bit more that you could cross somewhat over into the healthcare provider consumer side as well, in addition to marketing towards hospitals and facilities that actually would need to provide this for them. Ideally, we would want the hospitals to buy it for our clinicians so that we're not having to do it ourselves. But, you know, kind of going into that, is that something that you guys ever look at uh, just as two different business lines or is it just, you know, kind of operating as, as what works best for your revenue? Um, I mean, we still, we're just like, because of our other, other product lines too, we're very much direct to the hospital. We're used sure. to marketing to them and working with supply chain. But I just brought up on a recent sales meeting, our fourth largest customer is actually Shopify, which is yeah. the online sales, the people that forgot us from word of mouth. Okay. So that's all clinicians that are taking it upon themselves to buy their own radiation protection, not the hospital, um, which is pretty telling. Mm-hmm. I so both, we, I both I mean, love and hate that for you. I, I know, like, yeah, that people like, are getting there. And, and it's so put- unfortunate. <laughs> like, it hurts my heart to hear that people are saying like, hey, I need this protection. I want to be safe. I want to, you know, OSHA regulations can take care of me too. And mm-hmm. they're not seeing that they're having to go outside of those channels. Yeah. So it's a, it's a plus and a minus. I'm you know, like, we should put more dollars into maybe digital marketing and things we don't spend a lot of money on because we're growing. But then, yes, the other side of me is, no, I should be pushing the hospital supply chain and HR people that this is needed and they should pay for it. Um, you know, they, I mean, I mentioned in the, when I was interviewed this, anytime I see an article about radiation exposure from clinicians, I usually reach out to them, thank them for bringing this attention to the public. And one um, orthopedic surgeon, she was quoted in an article, I reached out to her and it bounced back and it was a weird bounce back. So I just Googled her to see if on LinkedIn, she was still there and she'd actually passed away from breast cancer and she publicly attributed it to her radiation exposure. So it's so critical. I mean, think about the healthcare costs that the hospital is incurring when you get cancer. If they would just put a little bit money up front for adequate radiation protection, maybe we could mitigate those awful consequences. Yeah, I got goosebumps from that story. Yeah. Outside of what you're doing, um, you know, in just in blocks, because I feel like we've we've talked about that product a lot. You know, as women at the table, we love to hear about you know women designed products that that feature us for for a change. But I'm always really interested in your story. You know, you're not just a CEO of one organization, but two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've done so much to at this stage of your career. Can you tell us a little bit about? you know, your, your journey on, on what that looked like and what it's like trying to manage, you know, two different organizations, their priorities while, while still having time for your own family. Yeah, it's definitely difficult. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, when we acquired, so uh, Next Medical, which makes ultrasound gel is in New Jersey. And we acquired Blocks or the radiation protection company out of Utah in the end of 2014. And I thought, okay, transition, obviously eventually they'll merge, we'll be under one roof. But for now, the employees in Utah were great, wanted to keep them, keep it where it is. Um, And now, you know, how many years later, I'm still going back and forth between Utah and New Jersey. Um, it's been almost again, a decade, by the way, I since know. she bought I'm, since she bought the other one. So <laughs> now I'm a Utah resident. <laughs> so um, it didn't really work out as I uh, thought. But I mean, again, the employees were really great, and they are really why the product is so good. It was great patented technology, but the people that make the product, we make everything in the U.S., which is unique. 
um, from everyone else. Even the core material in the aprons, we don't import. We make everything in Salt Lake City. So it just, you know, they're doing such a great job to move the company just to, you know, improve our bottom line. Just wasn't wasn't what I wanted to do. So, so I'm still going back and forth, <laughs> and it is difficult, um, especially during COVID and travel restrictions. But it it's working right now. So how do you actually get products into the pipeline? So are between Bloxer and Next Medical, do you have some R&D and groups that are actually researching and looking at things where they can kind of fill some gaps that meet your criteria as a company? Um, well, we share sales reps. So that's kind of where the companies uh, overlap. Uh, we have independent reps and they both actually sell into radiology. So they're very different categories, but ultrasound gel typically goes under diagnostic imaging, radiology, and then the radiation protection, even though it's all around the hospital, ties up there. So we overlap with our sales reps, which is sort of the only way we overlap. <laughs> um, aside from that, it's really it's separate employees. It's it's all it's all separate. So it's been hard to manage and juggle back and forth, different people, different regulations, um, different classes of for medical devices. We're classified differently for the FDA and also around the world. So it's definitely a juggle regulatory wise. That's why I do all the regulatory. <laughs> um, yeah, just keeping up with that. Um, so since your sales rep uh, sort of cross-pollinate across yeah. the companies and things, do they hear different things from their, you know, hospital contacts and things? And do they pick up things that they might share about, hey, I've now heard about like this new piece of equipment and maybe they could use this, this and that that might fit into your blueprint for uh, making something or whatever? They de they they definitely do. They're kind of our you know boots on the ground, and they give us a lot of feedback. Um, with Bloxer, when we bought the company, they didn't do anything custom. They had I think like four SKUs just in different sizes, and so it was feedback from the reps um, saying, or you know, the aprons don't fit the women and things like that. And that's sort of how we've expanded the product line, just based off feedback from customers that we get through our sales reps. I know a lot of companies are getting rid of independent reps. Um, we see a value in them, so we still use we still use them for all of our product lines. Mm -hmm. Well, eyes and ears on the ground are great because you can only be in New Jersey and and Utah yourself, and uh, it, you know it's just important to have those ears, you know, really listening, and and advances companies like yourself, but also healthcare and, and people feel like they're being listened to. That's great. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm very hands-on, obviously. I I consider myself the technical salesperson, but all of our reps reach out to me if they have a, what they think might be a difficult sales call. I'm always available for a 10-minute Zoom with supply chain or with value analysis or the radiation safety officer. So I think being really involved in both locations is a lot to juggle, but definitely worth it and makes everyone feel more like part of the same team. Yeah. Yeah. So tapping into that just a little bit, I've heard a lot about um, just kind of like the day-to-day -day life and the role of a CEO. And I think that this, it can be true from any size of the or organization. You could be an organization of five to an organization of 500,000. 
Um, but the thing is, is you often hear that the day-to-day or the life of a CEO can be a quite, quite a lonely one. Uh, not sure if that's something that you are able to relate to, but if it is, what are some of the ways that you kind of work around that? Or, you know, what are the ways that you feel like you're not always, you don't always feel like you're on the island kind of leading the charge between these two organizations? I do agree with that. I mean, lonely sounds really <laughs> sad, but I mean, you're, when you're the yeah. CEO, you have to take on the projects that maybe come up, the fires that come up that no one wants to do, or, you know, maybe you're the best person for the job. So everyone thinks it's so glamorous. Oh, you're a CEO and you, you travel so much. <laughs> like, I don't think you realize what I actually do on a daily basis, you know, being stuck at an airport for seven hours on a layover, you know, a delayed flight is not fun. It's no longer glamorous. Um, and you really do have to take on the projects or the fires that just come up that, you know, wasn't planned for. So it wasn't in anyone's agenda to handle that that week. Um, you're kind of constantly putting out fires, especially with a small business and with COVID and supply chain, you just start getting into operations and sourcing and every different part of the company. Um, how I don't feel lonely? <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, I work with my family. I work with my dad. So in some ways, that is a nice outlet, I guess. I mean, we obviously have a very good relationship personally and business-wise. So it's nice to be able to speak to someone who's been in the industry, has the mm-hmm. experience, is non-judgmental because he's my dad. <laughs> like, yeah. So there's there's like an interesting family dynamic there that I don't think everyone has. Um but a lot of our employees too worked for my father previously. So mm-hmm. I have known them since I was in kindergarten. Um, so that's also a different dynamic, even though they report to me, I, I, I've known them my, almost my whole life. So yeah. we have a very like tight knit company in both locations. Well, you kind of talk about the kindergarten thing. So I kind of want to go back there. So in kindergarten, if you opened up a piece of paper, did it say, I want to be a CEO of a small company in healthcare? Or how did you actually uh, sort of educate yourself, uh, the education you got? And then how did you transition into your role? So in kindergarten, I would have told you I want to be a doctor. And by second grade, I would have already told you a pediatric cardiologist. So I was very specific in this goal. Um, I started out pre-med in college. Mm. And I I mean, I didn't love, you know, organic chemistry and the science classes. And I thought Mm. if my heart's not really in this, this is a lot of work, going to be a lot of schooling, a lot of money. Um, But I was still really interested in the industry. My father had a blood pressure cuff business. So I grew up knowing about the industry more from the manufacturing medical device side. And... um, I still didn't think I would be doing this, though. I, if I had known, I would have shadowed my dad and maybe uh, <laughs> had different internships in college. I, I still, I guess, I don't know why I didn't. I was interested in healthcare, but didn't really think about what I was going to do specifically, even after I decided I wasn't going to be a doctor. Um, and then I came out of college and I actually traveled. I worked in an AIDS orphanage in Uganda. I did a bunch of different projects. I took Swahili in college, so it wasn't too random to go to Uganda. Um, but I thought I was going to go work on Wall Street. I just thought, well, you know, why not? Um, and my dad convinced me. I, I said, well, maybe someday I'll have a manufacturing facility because I think it's really cool that you employed you know, a couple hundred people. You worked near us near where we lived in New Jersey. So you could raise a family. Like I could see the benefits of being a business owner. I mean, those benefits. Um, And so he took me on a little tour of manufacturing companies that he knew were for sale in the industry, all in medical devices. 
And I would do a lot of research. I'm very type A. I don't like going into situations that I you know, don't know every, don't know a lot about, I guess. So I did so much research on ultrasound when we went to look at an ultrasound gel business. And we looked at catheters, patient transport systems, like all, all different things. I learned a lot. And ultrasound really fascinated me because it is growing so much. It's still, I mean, you can see now you can do a handheld like from your iPhone. Just the advances are really beyond what I think people thought they would be. Um, I, I tell people all the time, eventually, we're not going to need a stethoscope anymore. The doctor's going to have a smartphone and that's going to be how they do it. And it's going to be all ultrasound technology. So that's what fascinated me. Most people are not that fascinated by ultrasound gel. They think it's just thick water. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's really important, especially with diagnostics now. You're looking for a speck of cancer. So you want really high quality gel for that high quality ultrasound image. So it just became a passion of mine. And that's kind of where it all started. Uh, that's a, that's a really cool story. And I kind of like the, that's a really neat analogy that you talk about ultrasound gel. And you're like, a lot of people think it's thick water just to kind of help with like that conduction versus understanding the true science behind it and why it's important that things are kind of manufactured in a certain way. Um, you said something too about being type A and liking to dig into situations before you get into them. Um, again, kind of going back to when I've talked to other people that are running organizations or making big decisions, um, some of them tell me, look, you might not always have all the data to be able to make some of these decisions and you kind of have to just go forward blindly. Is that something that you find a little bit in, in and of yourself as well? Or, and when you do, how do you kind of, how do you jump into that a little bit and say, okay, I'm going to trust my gut a little bit more versus how much information you actually have at your fingertips to either make a decision or know which direction you want to go? I think being a CEO, you definitely have to trust your gut and hopefully it, it's always taking you in the right direction. And I think knock on wood, I've been really lucky in that regard, especially with hiring people, hiring and firing. You really, a lot of times have to go with your gut there. You don't know if what you see on paper or what, what they're telling you is really going to you know, be what you get. So especially with a small business, when you're putting a lot into your employees, that can be definitely a go with your gut situation. That has worked out well for me so far. Absolutely, yeah. The other thing is I do the FDA ISO audits. I do all the regulatory audits that we have. And a lot of that is, you know, on your feet, getting a question that has nothing to do with the actual regulation or standard. They're just coming out of left field to see how you answer it. Um, A lot of leading questions and things. So a lot of that is you need to be really knowledgeable and intelligent with your response, but a lot of it is just reading the room and going with your gut and doing what you think is best in the situation. One of the things that, uh, and kind of following along Abby's vein of, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to leaders and one of the things that seems to always come up is the idea of, you know, I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without my lieutenants, without my second in command, without people that I can trust to see things before they even happen and and keep them off my radar. Um, you know, what are some of the characteristics or traits? Cause you know, you, you're talking about women led businesses. So this is not, you know, we're, we're taking a little bit of extra care to make sure that we're, we're building our panel up around us. What are some of the characteristics that you're looking for in, in your team? So I always tell people, I love hiring single moms. And everyone's reaction is, oh, really? they're probably home all the time with childcare issues and whatever. And I'm like, no, single moms are the hardest working women in the world, I think. And I'm not a single mom. 
I just have hired them and I see that they are so loyal. They have they have their skin in the game, whether it's an executive level or it's a production, like manufacturing level. They are really dedicated. They are like the sole supporter for their family. And that's I'm so I'm always trying to hire women, especially seeing people are like, oh, you know, maybe you know, you're you're not being equal here. You're like literally looking for single moms. But I think that they are the best. And in our sales reps, our sales reps are actually mostly male. And I've tried to hire um, women just because we're a woman-owned company. I'm clearly the face of the company. I think when you're also selling on diversity status, it might be better to have a female sales rep. But our industry is just very male-dominated still in terms of sales reps. I'm, I mean, I've tried to hire female sales reps and they don't apply. So, uh, so we are a majority male in terms of our 1099 sales reps. And they're great. Like the mall, we definitely try to hire people who are family friendly, family oriented. I go to the conferences to meet them too because I want to make sure they're presenting, you know, a good face for Next Medical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've definitely met a lot of sales reps who make little comments uh, that I don't think support women. And then you know, you will not be hired by Next Medical if that's what the vibe I get. So we definitely have a more feminist attitude, even though it's a lot of men in our sales force. I, you know, we've, we've talked to multiple times about the idea of healthcare itself or, you know, and what the medical technology side of that, be it manufacturing, be it the product development or the CEOs is we're starting to see that migration toward, toward more equality at the table. We're starting to see more representation there. Um, so, you know, if you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, or even so, you know, someone coming up in the business now as to how to seize some of that opportunity for themselves, you know, what do you think was a, a lesson that, that you'd really want them to know? Hmm. I think for a lot of young women in the industry too, I tell them to just go for it. I think a lot of times they're sitting back or maybe not even just in our industry, waiting, you know, for the opportunity for a review. I think go ask for the review before the one year is up at that company and ask for the raise and ask what you think you deserve and know your worth. And I think every, the women know that, but we're just not as vocal about it. Uh, when we are probably in the right, and we have, you know, the sales data or performance to back it up. Whereas I also think a lot of men just say they are worth something and they don't have the data to back it up. And like women are more methodical. And I think we just need to be more vocal about it. And I'm always telling them, like, shoot your shot. You don't, I mean, what do you have to lose? They say, no, nah, you know what? I think you're fine in the position you're in. Well, at least you tried. Yeah, I, that's something that I, I feel like I can't communicate enough in our organization. Um, women and men, either one, you know, I mean, a lot of it is in general, how are we supposed to know where you want to go? And if you're not speaking up and telling us what your aspirations and things like that are. So, you know, I think that that's, that's really kind of awesome advice to be able to dole out. Um, just kind of. I also went to an all girl school. And so <laughs> I think I have a unique background where there were no boys to compete with. We had to ask the boys to prom. We had to, we were the senior leaders. Um, so I think that yeah. really cultivated this in me just without even thinking about it. You know, I just, my high school was grade seven through 12, all girls. And yeah. so we were, we were just kind of raised this way. Yeah. So we, not kind of sitting back and, and, having that unconscious bias that sometimes would come across a little bit that in the, in a weird way, unconsciously train girls or females to not speak up as much unless you absolutely could back yourself up. Whereas a lot of boys 
probably came along the way, a way of being able to wing it. I mean, mm-hmm. I see it and hear it to this day a lot in this industry of, um, there's a lot of times that I, I'm seeing a lot of males just kind of like speak up and kind of like go off the cuff about some things. And I'm just kind of like, I don't know that that's entirely accurate until you like dig underneath. A lot of people aren't challenging them on it until afterwards. And they're like, oh, wait, it wasn't accurate, but that's what they've been able to do. Whereas women, I think, do get challenged a lot more quickly. So it is that that constant, like, look, go ahead and speak up, be, own it, be yourself, take a shot on yourself and um, being able to do that. So I think that the more we kind of support that message and also allow people to mess up and, and potentially um, need to correct their mistakes, the more that that, that culture is going to be supported. So I, I love that. Um, I also love to hear the plug about hiring or targeting single moms if you can find them. So I've got I've got plenty that I will send your way if you ever need any. So. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Okay, guys, we are getting toward the end of our time here together today. Um, any final questions or thoughts to share with Julia? Well, I think um, she's I'll, given. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Barbara. <laughs> I was gonna no. say, I'll go. I'll go first. And Julia, it was um, a pleasure to have you on. I think you're pretty insightful and um, definitely a lot of experience. And I think there's there's more. There's a lot beyond that surface um, to for you to be able to share. Um, it's very clear that you have a very insatiable curiosity. And um, again, just you know, being able to look at where your background is and where it drove you to not only just being a very successful business owner and somebody that's running two organizations and cares about the people that are helping you run those organizations, but then being an advocate for those that just haven't been able to speak for themselves. So, yeah. Well said, well said, Abby. Yeah, I too want to thank you, Julia. Appreciate you coming on. And I think your your whole story from kindergarten all the way through was very motivational for a lot of uh, women or others out there and and your focus on something in healthcare so early uh, sometimes that's um, not something that comes across I, I didn't have that on my list until I got to be about 22 years old so it was way beyond kindergarten but I really enjoyed your fresh take on things and the fact that you're focusing on areas where uh, it seems like simple products that are almost like a one size fits all, but giving it that extra, you know, glance to it and making sure that it's fitting all those that need to use those products. So that's really great. And I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you all. This was great. And I'm glad I was introduced and now I can listen along to future episodes. Wonderful. Thank you, Julia. I think that your insights about what it's been like to be in this space, you know, even the idea of trying to keep it all loving the the aspect of, you know, finding representation, you know, whether that is for our the, the feminine products of actually having radiology gowns that fit you or hiring our single moms. I think that you're doing really amazing things and representing, you know, what has historically been a really under underrepresented market. Appreciate your insights today. A special thank you also to our audience for taking the time to join us today. And we look forward to having you on future episodes of the MedTech Business Academy.